The funny thing about attitude is that it seems really easy to have a bad one, but sometimes I think we fail to give credit where it's due to the people who have a really, really good one. This is my conversation with Terry Tucker. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repton. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Terry Tucker. He speaks on the topics of self-motivation, self-development, and mindset. He has a degree in business administration from the Citadel, where he played NCAA Division I basketball. He has a master's from Boston University, and in his career, he's been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, and for the past 10 years, a cancer warrior. Terry's also the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Hurst. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. Likewise. So speaking of an extraordinary life, we're living in extraordinary times. Have you noticed any real change in what you're talking with people about, what their struggles are? Yes. You know, as you mentioned, I've been a cancer warrior for the last 10 years, but, but I think what COVID has done for all of us it's isolated us, you know, and, and cancer tends to isolate you from your family, from your friends, and even from yourself. And I think COVID has done that with, with a lot of people. And I wrote a, a chapter in my book, one of the 10 principles is this, and, and it's probably my favorite because I hate to say this, I've done it enough in my life, I'm not proud of it, but it's this, it's that most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And, you know, when you, when you are isolated, you know, your mind starts to play all kinds of tricks on you. And, and you start thinking of all the negative, all the bad. Our, our minds always go to the negative side of the house. And if you can just flip that narrative, if you can just change that into something more positive, you look at the number of people that have started businesses during the pandemic. And you're like, well, how could that possibly have done? You were totally isolated. Well, they figured out a way to do that. They figured out a way to change the narrative in their mind. And instead of thinking with their fears and their insecurities, started thinking with things that were, you know what, I can do this. And I always tell young people, especially, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then, it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Speaking from your own experience, what has your relationship with fear been like? I, I think fear for me has been, and this is going to sound kind of weird, kind of a lifesaver. There's a man by the name of Gavin DeBecker who has a program out at Stanford University, former works with the Secret Service and all kinds of stuff. He wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And I kind of go back to when I was a police officer. And, you know, most people run away from danger. Well, first responders are taught to, well, no, you've got to go towards the danger and things like that. 
And I, I worked as a policeman in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I worked, you know, my first five years were, were in a marked car, you know, in a uniform, answering radio runs. And Cincinnati usually ran single person cars, one person to a car. But in certain areas, they had kind of hot spots, and our beat was a hot spot. And I, I ran with a partner, and we always had an agreement that even if they were dispatching us on a noise run, you know, hey, the neighbor's calling to tell the person to turn their TV down or something yeah. like that. And one of us said, you know what, got a bad feeling about this run, got a, you know, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. We never dismissed that. We were never like, ah, it's just a noise run. It's not, you know, it's not going to mean anything. We always said, okay, if that, you know, little siren goes off, if that hair on the back of your neck stands up, then we need to pay attention to that because it's given to us for a reason. And so we were always like, I don't care if it's a noise run, we're going to take extra caution. We're, we're going to be extra careful in doing this. And, and that was not out of necessarily fear, but it was certainly fear motivated. It's like, you know, I don't want to get shot. I don't want to get in a situation, you know, where I don't come home to my family and things like that. So I think fear for us had was always something that kept us alive. I mean, it's nature's way of saying, hey, yeah, you probably ought to not do that. This, you know, that might kill you and, and you may die. But you know what? That was our job. We had to do the things that, that we needed to do to, to be police officers. How do you differentiate between what is a sixth sense about danger? And that can extend to you're on a hike. You, it can extend to adventures that you're having. How do you differentiate between a sixth sense and a fear of doing something that because again, it comes down to risk. How do you differentiate between a bad, uh, I got a feeling about this and I really need to get over my, my fear? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know if I have a great answer for you, to be <laughs> honest with you. You know, as long as you're not in physical danger, you know, that you know, there may be somebody on the other side of that door with a gun or you know, somebody that's trying to do you harm, you know, walking down an alley or something like that. I recommend doing whatever it is that scares you, because that's the only way you're going to push through to say, okay, you know, I did that. It scared the heck out of me. I remember when I was in high school, I had my first knee surgery as a result of a basketball injury. And I remember being at school before the surgery and I had everybody telling me, oh, you know, knee surgery, there's so many nerves in the knee, it's going to be incredibly painful. This is going to be, a, it was the worst, I was almost catatonic <laughs> sitting outside my back door when my parents were getting ready to take me to the hospital for surgery. I was so frightened because I had listened to what everybody else had told me. And that had just blown up to something that was incredibly overwhelming for me. And, and then I went through the surgery and yeah, there was pain, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what I made it out to be. So our minds can be our worst enemy or our minds can be that thing that says, you know what, yeah, it's scary, but push through it, get through the things. We're all gonna have pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be you know, cancer pain or any kind of an illness like mine has been. Pain is inevitable. Suffering on the other hand, suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you take it and use it to make you stronger and more resolute? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? Just like anything else in life, it's a choice. You have to figure out which choice you want to make. 
And we know that life is a series of challenges. And the more I talk to people, the more encouragement I myself and my listeners receive to take that leap. And yes, 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 you want it to be scary. You don't want it to be safe. You don't want it to be assured and comfortable, especially because life is short. It's unpredictable. Do you feel that in our society, we're somehow not valuing joy as much as it as it should be valued? Yes. We were not put here. Mother Teresa has a great quote. She said, God never expects you to be successful. He just asks you to be faithful. You know, so I mean, but we're, we're so into the, you know, I've got to be successful. And we define success by money, power, influence. There was a, there's a story that was going around a few years ago about Alexander the Great, probably one of the 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 greatest conquerors, if not the greatest conqueror of all time. I don't think this story ever really happened, but it is a good story if you understand Alexander the Great. Supposedly, as he was dying, he called his counselors together and he said, you know what, I want you to carry out my final three wishes for me. He said, my first wish is I want my physicians, my doctors to carry my coffin to the grave. My second wish is I want the road to the cemetery paved with gold and silver and precious stones. And my third wish is I want my hands to be left outside of my coffin. And one of his counselors kind of looked at him and said, I mean, you're Alexander the Great. You can have anything you want. You're the most powerful man in the world. These seem like kind of goofy wishes. My <laughs> words, not his. You know, it seemed like kind of goofy wishes. He said, can you explain why you want these wishes? He said, absolutely. He said, I want people to understand that no doctor cures anything. They just help the body to cure itself. So people need to be conscious of, you know, exercise, diet, you know, the things that they put in their body and what they do with their body. That was the first thing. He said, the second thing is I've spent my entire life accumulating wealth and power and influence, and yet not one ounce of my gold is going with me beyond the grave. And then the third wish was his hands being outside of his coffin. He said, I want people to understand that I came into this world empty handed and I leave it pretty much the same way. And I always think about that when it's like, you know, yeah. wouldn't it be great if I was this? Well, would it really? I mean, all the things that we accumulate in life, none of that goes with us beyond the grave. The one thing that does and the one thing I think we need to spend a lot more time on is you talked about joy. I'm going to use another word and that's love. Right, right. Because there is not the, I was going to say that the best way to recognize the true value of success is not to achieve it as you planned or as you tried. In other words, you, you aspire to something, you don't get it. And after you don't get it, you're like, well, okay. You know, you may, you may be upset for a while. You may, you could also keep trying, but you may, after a while, first of all, there may be a reason why you haven't attained it. Like maybe you don't really want it, or you're really not sure that it is the best thing or that it's all it's cracked up to be. But once you don't get it, you're kind of like, okay, I, you know, I'm still sitting here. I'm, I'm still doing my thing. I have all these other things that I've done. I don't know that I really need that. I, you know, and that comes with time. Or you have a bucket list and you have things you still want to do. But when you listen to people who've attained a certain level, you know, like the 
Alexander the Great story is a great one. They will often say, well, if you now that I've gotten it, I don't know what I I don't know why I gave up all those other things. Because what am I going to how am I going to get those other things back? How am I going to get back time with my family? How am I going to get back the love of my loved ones? You know, the, how am I going to get back the integrity that I may have sacrificed in, 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 a, in, a, in a moment of, of negotiation with myself? I'll do this if I do that. So I think we don't trust our gut a lot. What about in the, you know, the hostage negotiation experiences there you're right up against a very volatile immediate set of choices walk me through what that's like yeah there, so there was a movie i remember seeing it i don't remember when it was i think it was back in the 1990s it was called the negotiator yeah samuel l jackson played samuel L. jackson almost, yeah superman kind of guy as a hostage negotiator and people always ask me if they've seen the movie is that the way it's like no that's absolutely, totally not the way it's like at all. The, the way it works for us is, yes, there is a primary negotiator, somebody who's talking to that person either through a door or on the phone or in some way. But then there's another negotiator, another one of us that is sitting right next to that person, listening, not saying anything, but just listening and passing that person notes. And then there are three or four or maybe even more negotiators sort of working what I call work in the crowd. You know, why are we here? What happened? What precipitated this? You know, and things like that. So you may be the primary and you get a note from your secondary that says, don't talk about his mother. Because somebody, you know, in the crowd said, well, he had a big fight with his mother and he grabbed a gun and now he's barricaded, you know, in his house. It's like, OK, so now that's a little bit more information that we didn't have before. That was great if you could have that. But there were a lot of times where you would be there and you had no idea why you were there. You know, you had no idea why this person had, I mean, if, if you were going after a homicide suspect and you knew they were barricaded, you know, with their girlfriend somewhere like, okay, that was different. But a lot of times you just showed up, this guy's barricaded. We don't know why. And so we had to try to figure that out. And there were a lot of times where we'd spend hours kind of over here talking with that person about something when the real issue was over here and we hadn't even gotten to that. And the reason was just like in any other relationship, whether it's your husband and wife, whether it's a boss or subordinate, whether it's a parent or a child, you have to develop a relationship. You have to develop trust. That person has to believe that you are, are telling them the truth. And we would have people that would say to us, look, I'll come out, I'll put the gun down, I'll let the hostage go, but you got to promise me I'm not going to jail. And we would have to say, well, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. But then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive. So trust was, was really the overarching thing of everything we did. We were trying to develop a relationship with that person. And the other two things that I think were important were, number one, listening. And, and I'm sure you all well, of course, listening is very important. But it was listening to understand versus listening to respond. You know, we got credit a lot of times for talking people out. What we really did was listen them out. You know, we would ask them an open-ended question. They would talk, 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 burn off a lot of that emotional energy. And then here's the last thing that I'll, and I'll end with this. The last thing that we had to be comfortable with was silence. So we would ask a person a question, they would talk for a while, and then they would stop talking. We don't like that as human beings. 
We don't like that silence. We want to fill it. So we had to get good at just shutting up because then they would get uncomfortable with the silence and they would start talking again. And that's exactly what we wanted them to do. So we had to listen to understand versus listening to respond to what they were trying to say. And all we would do was take what they gave us, parrot it back to them and attach an emotion to it. And, and the, where trust came in was where people would, you know, they would be ranting and raving and yelling and screaming. And if you didn't hit that, that emotion right, if you said, oh, you seem like you're a little upset, you totally missed what they were saying. You had, you had to get down in the weeds. You had to get down in the mud with these people. And that's why negotiating was so exhausting. That's great advice in general for us and the place that we are at in society right now where we have such a hard time understanding and listening to each other. And we're often beyond negotiation at the, at the point that we start to talk to people. We already have made all these assumptions. They've made assumptions about us. We're not interested. They're not interested. None of those things are permanent. We are not destined to be divided as human beings. We're just, we're going through a period of poor communication. So listen to understand is phenomenal. The other thing was that it reminded me of how I deal with clients sometimes, where you are listening to them to understand what they, what they mean, not just what they want you to do. Having worked at all, at all these different areas, what brought you up to the point where you said, I have to start helping people with their, with their thinking, with their goals? Yeah, I, th I think Mr. Rogers, you know, when we all know Mr. Rogers, we kind of grew up with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. When, when Fred Rogers died and they were cleaning out his wallet, they found a piece of paper that said, life is about service. And, and I've always believed that. And, my you know, it doesn't matter what we do for a living. It's what impact do we have on other people. And I, I remember when my when I graduated from college, my, you know, I, I here I am, first person in my family to graduate from college. I'm all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I, I look back now and realize how little I knew about business just because I had a degree. <laughs> but when I graduated, my father and my grandmother were both dying of different forms of cancer. So I get out of college, I'm all set to make my mark on the world. Fortunately, I found that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years, helping my mom care for my father and my grandmother who were, you know, dealing with the, these different forms of cancer. So what I learned from my dad, who had end stage breast cancer back in the 1980s, was you need to have a purpose in life, especially when you're dying. You know, if you if you have nothing to look forward to, you're going to die much quicker. As I mentioned, my dad was end stage breast cancer. He lived for three and a half years. And I believe he did because he had a purpose. He was into real estate and he worked up till two weeks before he died. So when I got cancer, I realized that I had to have some type of a purpose. I couldn't just lay around. I have not worked in the last 10 years in any kind of a job, any kind of a consistent job for another person. So I was like, I gotta have something to do. I gotta have something that, you know, that makes a difference in my life and in other people's lives. So it was setting up my blog motivational check, writing the book, you know, being on podcasts. I, I started a motivational speaking business, probably the worst decision I ever made right in the middle of the global pandemic. And so nobody was hiring. 
So I had to change that to, well, maybe I should do podcasts. And I remember the first person who reached out to me said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And my response was, what's a podcast? I had no idea <laughs> yeah. what this, you know, what this was, but I thought, oh, well, maybe that's an avenue. Maybe that's an opportunity for me. So it was more about, I'm in this phase of my life where I'm probably coming to the end of it. And now I want to put as much goodness, positivity, motivation, love back into the world as I can by telling my story and by hopefully educating people. I don't have all the answers. I mean, this is my story and these are things that have worked for me. I don't know if they'll work for you, but I'm just going to put them out there. And if they do, please take them and hopefully make your life a little bit better. And we don't have the pressure of needing to find the answer from one source. If we're all working together, we're all kind of trying to put our ideas out and our experiences, then there's a chance that mine may help someone else, yours may help a different person, ours may help one another. And the fact that we're doing it shouldn't be discounted either. The fact that you're out there putting this out there, going back to what you said about love, putting that love out into the world again is like pumping good vibes, positronics, you know, into the into the procedure. Share a little bit, if you would, about your cancer journey and how it's evolved. Yeah, so 2012, I uh, had my own school security consulting business, and I was also a girls' high school basketball coach in Texas, and I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And initially, I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment, went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to him. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no blood, no dark spots, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Yeah. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Tara, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I've never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And because your cancer is so incredibly rare, he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, which is maybe one of the best cancer hospitals in the United States, maybe in the world, to be treated. And so I did, you know, I had the tumor excised on the bottom of my foot, I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And when I healed, my oncologist put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. The side effects of interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And, and that wasn't a cure. That was, as my oncologist used to say, we're trying to kick the can down the road to buy you more time for additional therapies to be developed. 2017, after five years on the interferon, I ended up in the intensive care unit because of the toxicity of the drug with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. Wow. Had to stop the drug after that. And almost immediately after stopping the interferon, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. 2018, had my left foot amputated. Cancer worked its way up my leg. 2019, two more surgeries. And then 2020, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle 
grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the COVID pandemic was to have my left leg amputated. And I also found out that I had tumors in my lungs. And I know that sounds like an incredibly dark journey, and it certainly has been. But I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by adversity. And mm -hmm. secondly, mm -hmm. I believe cancer has made me a better human being. It is the kind of darkness that, you know, the first reaction is, as you say, the first reaction is to say, oh, well, that's a that's such a dark story. It's tragic. And, you know, you want a happy ending for it. But I think for listeners, it's similar to what you go through when you get bad news or what any of us go through when we get bad news. We have a process where we absorb the news or we're shocked or we're just, we're just sad and we're just concerned. Then we have a point at which a light bulb goes off and we're like, okay, what are we going to do about this situation? We can't reverse the course if we can do one thing or we'll do it. Well, what are our options? But really it's what are our options and what, what can we do? So now what is your prognosis at this moment? So I, I still have these tumors in my lungs. I get treated every three weeks. I live in Colorado now, so at the University of Colorado Hospitals, I get treated with a clinical trial drug that has shrunk the tumors a little bit. They're still there. I'm a, what they call stable. You know, they're not getting any bigger. They're not getting any, any smaller. And so I'm kind of in a stable area and that's where I am. And th this drug is very hard on my body. I when I get it, I shake, I throw up, I have a fever, I have all kinds of negative things. And I've been doing this for almost two years. But I remember a story that I heard some years ago about a professor back in the 1950s at Johns Hopkins University who did an experiment with rats. And, and hang with me on this. I'm, I promise I'm going sure. somewhere. Like, what are you talking about yeah. rats? You, you know. <laughs> but he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long these rats could tread water. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as the rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats treaded water on average for 60 hours. Now think about that. The first time, 15 minutes. I'm just not going to fail. You know, I didn't start a business and the business is going to go, I'm going to die. I'm going to go under. I'm going to drown. The second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe that maybe not today, maybe not next week, maybe not even next year, but at some point in time, our life is going to get better. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we all have a breaking point, but I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. It's a wonderful point that you make. And it's it reminds me of something I heard yesterday in a completely different context from someone who was talking about spirituality and the lessons we learn and how her point was it would take lifetime after lifetime for us to actually absorb all there is for us to learn about our souls, our spirit, our humanity, our physicality, everything. It's like it's so much, so massive that we only scrape the surface in a lifetime if we're, if we're lucky. 
And what I was thinking is, as you were speaking, is if we can dig down and find that hopeful place, if we imagine that the, the test, the purpose is really to test our limits of hope, not to have a perfect life, not to have an uneventful life that doesn't involve shocks or sadness or loss, because we know that's completely impossible, right? That's completely antithetical to reality. You know, there's there's levels, but there, but that's not possible. So if the if the goal is to test those boundaries and to keep going and keep trying and keep hopeful and pouring love in the world, then maybe we're passing the test more than we realize we're judging it based on all these things and i think that's the real gift that you're able to share with all this energy and all this enthusiasm and knowledge and background and history and experience and intellect that you can bring to this i i had a nurse recently ask me you know what was it like to have your foot amputated and to, to have your leg amputated and and I told her it certainly has not been easy. It's it's been two years since I've had my leg amputated. I'm still learning how to walk again. You know, I'm six foot eight inches tall, so falling is not an option. You know, at my <laughs> height, you get hurt. But what I told her, and and I think it kind of goes to the point you were just making, is that cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. That's who I am, Hurst. That's who you are. That's who your audience is. We get all hung up on how we look. And I mean, it, you're looking at me right now and like from here up, I look like just normal person. From my waist down, I am loaded with scars, but I've earned those scars and I am proud of those scars. So when people always get you know hung up about you know my hair color, or what I'm wearing and all that kind of stuff, that, is, that goes back to the Alexander the Great story of that's the superficial part of life. Work on right. who you really are, your heart, your mind, and your soul. Work on those things, and I think you'll have a much more productive life. And if you believe in something after this life, I think you'll have a much better life after this as well. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.